Hello and welcome to my live episode of Fox in the City. Happy Monday. I just got back from Palm Springs and it was delightful. I love Palm Springs. I want to have a house there. I want to take naps there and get in the water there and just feel the heat of it and sweat out all of the LA every other weekend and then drive back to LA and be like, oh, I'm glad I'm back in LA because the grass is always greener. The grass is always greener, except in Palm Springs where they don't have grass, they have rocks because it's the desert, but you know what I'm saying? Maybe the rocks are always browner in the other person's yard. The rocks are always harder in the other neighborhood. I have found that 40s are just, because I'm still in my early 40s, I'm turning 42 on Wednesday, but as you slide into a new decade, you start noticing changes in yourself, both the way that you interact with people, but also kind of personal preferences and things that you once used to do that aren't that interesting to you anymore. E.G., E.G., I used to be able to drink morning, noon, and night, and day drinking didn't faze me whatsoever, especially if I was on vacation, especially if I was in a pool. I would think, okay, I'm going to drink, 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 then I'll take a disco nap, boop, boop, then I'll go out to dinner and have some drinks then, because I'll be sober by then, then I'll go out and party all night. And that is just not my reality anymore. First of all, I, at most, I drink once a week these days. And a lot of times I don't even do that because I just, I am at a point in life where I like to slide into my bed with a sober mind. I like to get on my iPad and turn on the television and half pay attention to what's on my iPad and half pay attention to what's on the TV. Okay, that's just, it's where I'm at in life. And I like waking up and feeling zero effects of having drank the night before. And there is no hangover cure that will make you feel that way. It's kind of like I'm abstinence only, but with drinking. You know, that's the only way to prevent the unwanted pregnancy of a hangover. There's no abortion. There's nothing that you can do after the fact. I've tried it all. I've tried, you know, after I get pregnant with alcohol or drunk, as the kids call it, I'll try drinking a bunch of Pedialyte. I'll take an aspirin, drink a lot of water. I'll eat pizza, thinking it's going to soak up stuff in my stomach. None of it works. There is no abortive measure. There's no abortion. There's no plan B pill. There's nothing. So in this case, conservatives have it right. Abstinence only is the only thing that works for me. And I'm going down that path. I, I mean, I occasionally, I'm like the Virgin Jerry in Strangers with Candy. You know, I need to slip up once a week, once a month, get a little pregnant. And I still try to have the abortion, it just never takes, if you know what I mean. But maybe I'm beating a dead horse, <laughs> so to speak, with this metaphor. <laughs> so I'll move on. Uh, so my friends, I probably was the only person in the house who did zero day drinking, just have no, no, no interest in that. 
And then we wrapped up both nights at a relatively early time. Palm Springs does everything kind of closes earlier there. Uh, and the bars die out a lot faster. Oh shit, I need to get gas. Oh, I did not anticipate that. Okay, whatever. I'll be able to make it to Long Beach, hopefully. If not, we can be together as my car runs out of gas on the freeway. This is this is the excitement value of a live podcast, a live car cast. Anything can happen. The car can run out of gas. I could get picked up and sold into sex slavery because what sex slave ringmaster isn't looking for a 42-year-old bottom who hasn't had sex in four years? I'm a hot commodity. I'm a hot commodity. Let's not pretend. Let's not play games. So uh, I got, I drank enough to like feel a little bit of buzz on both nights. My favorite part of the second night was when we pulled back home, we were all gonna get in the hot tub and get in the pool and maybe drink a little bit more, although I did not drink a little bit more. And there were, everything is a vacation rental in Palm Springs. All these homes, people buy them and then the way that they pay off their mortgage is by doing vacation rentals when they're not staying in Palm Springs. So there was a party of straight people from Seattle right across the street from us. And I immediately went inside. I, I didn't care about talking to anybody, but a group of people in my party started talking to the group of straight people across the street because some of the guys were hot and they didn't know, like maybe these are their girlfriends, like as in just friends or their fag hags or whatever. So, and the guys were cute and they were, I mean, that would have been great if that all worked out, right? I would have let him pop my cherry, had the occasion emerged. And so it turns out that it's a bunch of mothers and their husbands and and just annoying straight white girls. Like the exact type of annoying straight white girl that populated most of the gay bars in Palm Springs because Palm Springs is a huge um, bachelorette party getaway for white women from the OC and all over really the West Coast. And in fact, we went to what's supposed to be like their biggest gay dance club. And it was like almost exclusively straight women wearing those Natalie Portman neon colored wigs. And one party was all the women were wearing a red dress. You know, we're here, we're different. And we're different by all looking like one another. We're gonna, let's do something different. Let's go to gay bars for your bachelorette party. Not realizing that's what every single fucking bachelorette party does. And it's so annoying, but at any rate. So we basically met up with all of these women who only five years ago had their bachelorette parties, had successive bachelorette parties. Let's do something different this time. Let's go to this gay bar instead of this gay bar. And so they talked to them and then my friend Matt came in and Matt said, oh my gosh, um, one of the women lifted up her shirt and flashed me her boobs and said, can you believe that I've breastfed two babies with these? Don't they look good? Well, first of all, how are you supposed to respond to that? It's setting you up. You have to be like, oh yeah, they look great. Like, first of all, a gay guy does not want to see your breast, period. It doesn't, even if they looked fabulous, it would be like, oh yeah, they look great. I have no interest in them whatsoever. You might as well be showing me a turtle shell. Like that's how much interest I have in it. It does nothing for me whatsoever. 
So we're all in the hot tub. Some people in my group are smoking pot. You know, just had, you know, woo, we're here for the weekend. We're partying. Everything's different. Let's get high. I can't. I can no longer, I can never smoke pot ever again because I have a, not a real allergy to it, but it affects me differently than the way it affects most people and it brings out my underlying anxiety disorders, but I don't want to get too Woody Allen about it right now. That's not the point of this story. Uh, so all of a sudden we hear, and this is probably at this point, three o'clock in the morning, we hear the voice of a drunken, screechy, white, straight woman go, Matt! Matt! On the other side of the wall of the house that we rented. <laughs> and at first, we didn't know if it was a cat getting into a fight with another cat. And people just set, get it just one by one. Kind of like, did you, did you hear that? Kind of like we were in a scary movie. Did you hear that? Did you? And then we'd all be silent. And we wouldn't hear it. And then suddenly somebody would start talking and then in the background again, Matt, Matt. So somehow they got in. I think they jumped over the wall because a determined straight woman is very resourceful. You have to give her that, Orlando. And she comes in with one of her straight girlfriends and one of the husbands. And the husband was actually really hot. So instead of immediately telling them, like, you need to go, we let the guy linger because we're like, hey, maybe he wants to, maybe he wants to play around. And, but that wasn't the case, unfortunately. And so when she came in, I just kind of, I did that thing where you float in the water face down with your arms out, like you're a corpse, like you're Brooke from Melrose Place. And then... Uh, and I tried to do that as long as possible. And evidently she looked at everybody and said, is he okay? Is he okay? So then I got up and then she, our hot tub was on this like elevated piece of land. And she got up the most obnoxious and drunk of all of them. She got up and she stood up on the edge of the hot tub and she started flailing her hands over her head and she said um, I'm Bunny I'm Bunny my name is Bunny I'm Bunny and then I had to I had to go full corpse in the water again I, I was just like I cannot I cannot take this and the straight guy was mortified you know I think he said to a few of our friends he's like I'm so sorry I'm so 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 sorry and so she wasn't getting the attention that she thought she was going to get. I don't know if some straight women think that the whole gay thing is actually not real and it just takes the right woman with a lot of personality to our, or that we were gonna think maybe, maybe it wasn't even about sexual attraction. Maybe it was just in her mind. She thought we were gonna think, wow, she is fabulous. She is fucking fabulous. Her name is Bunny and she is owning it. But that was exactly the opposite of what we were thinking, right? We were thinking we've dealt with about a thousand bunnies all weekend going to bars that were intended for gay men to meet one another. Okay, so we're bunnied out. Okay, Easter's over. No more bunnies. 
I'll cook a bunny. I'll rip the foot off a bunny and use it for good luck, okay? So she eventually left, they left. And then the next morning we were making bunny jokes all morning. And uh, so the one that I did was reminiscent of that Amy Poehler character from Saturday Night Live. My name is Bunny. These titties have breastfed two children. I have one leg and I fart when I hop. <laughs> Jealous. <laughs> and we said that, that maybe the reasons reason why they call her Bunny is because she only has one leg and she hops. Although Bunny in reality had two legs. So I don't want to lie. I don't have to exaggerate. Nothing to exaggerate in that situation. But it was a really, really, really wonderful birthday. I uh, went to this place called Brickworks for my dinner and my friend somehow snuck in this cake even though we all took the same Uber over to the restaurant. And it was this cute little cake and it had rainbows on it because we're all super gay. And it said happy 42nd birthday, which was a trip. And then the bar the waiter who did not give us that great of service, um, but I don't think it was necessarily his fault. I think it was just overstaffed, but whatever, that's neither here nor there. I, at one moment I looked down at the cake. I was like, holy shit, I'm 42. Like, how did this happen? This is, it just seems so like, oh my gosh, the killer, the call has been coming from inside the house all the whole time, right? When a stranger calls, except the maniac killer is actually the aging process that's embedded in all of our bodies, right? And the call is coming from within the house and now I'm 42 and just being hacked away. Um, so, you know, just like, let me have my moment of like being like, holy shit, I'm 42. But no, there's always that asshole. And of course it's the guy who's giving us subpar service who's like, and he's from London. He's like, mate, I'm 52. I'm like, okay. Okay. Uh, Eureka Slutskaya, you know, or some Russian gymnast. It's not a competition. Can I just bask in my own 42-ness? Can I just have a moment before you try to rip it from me and upstage me with your 52-ness, okay? You win. You win. No, but I was super appreciative of my friends and I gave a very brief speech just saying one of the wonderful things about aging is when you're younger, you are in these places in life where you still have shitty friends, but it's harder to discern between the friends you want in your life and the friends who don't add much or who detract in significant ways. And sometimes the most charming person in a room can also be the biggest fucking interpersonal nightmare out of all of your friends. And throughout my 20s and 30s, I would forgive people. I would suffer fools if they were really vivacious or interesting or, you know, something else that I admired. But then there would be all of this, like, sidebar bullshit that I had to deal with that was so annoying. And now... I spot that shit a mile away and I go, huh? you know, I'll be cordial to, like, I don't go out of my way to be mean to somebody who I think is too much, but I always try to keep a very comfortable distance from people like that. So it's nice to have friends that uh, do simple stuff, stuff that every adult should know by the time they're in their mid thirties. Like for instance, if you fuck up, if you make a mistake, if you hurt somebody's feelings, 
you contact that person and you apologize for it. And you don't try to stick to your guns and say, well, that's who I am. And if you don't like that, then why would you want to be friends with me in the first place? Because this is me. And a lot of people are like that. Some people, when they hurt your feelings, will totally dig their heels in their sand, unwilling to change. Other people are more self-reflexive about it and their immediate response is, if, not if I did this, I did this, it hurt you, and I won't do it again. And that seems like it should be common sense stuff, but it takes, it took me at least a while before I, I gained the self-confidence to go, okay, these are the type of people I want in my life and I'm not putting up with any of the other bullshit. And everybody who was at my table, I felt that way about. So that was, it was just a nice moment. Um, because the best way to celebrate yourself is to look at your friends, right? And, and how much they care about you and how cool they are and how, um, how evolved they are as human beings. Because the truth of it is, is that people who aren't that evolved don't care if they also don't have other people in their life who aren't that evolved. But people who are tend to want other evolved people in their lives. So that's why when people say your friends are a reflection of you, it's true. But you know, I've, I've uh, said enough about that. So now I feel like I need to move on to news stories. That was basically my weekend in a nutshell. Uh, not really a nutshell, that would be a really big nut. But long story short, or short story long, that's how my weekend went. So in the news, what is going on in the news? I know Rudy Giuliani is in the hot seat right now because he went on and he did these interviews. He was completely ill-prepared and he claimed that Donald Trump, that Cohen paid off Stormy Daniels and that Trump was in on it. And basically everything that Trump's camp has been saying Trump didn't do, Giuliani came out in this bumbling interview and was like, yeah, it all happened, but it was all legal because they can't keep their stories straight. And now Giuliani is trying to backpedal and the whole thing is just a mishigas, as they would say. It's a mess. It's a mess. I remember right after 9-11 thinking so highly of Rudy Giuliani and this guy is a crisis manager and he's a, he's a maverick, right? That's what they called John McCain, which is the second news story that we'll talk about. But oh my gosh, it's so, everybody who has any close association with Trump has lost so many, so much credibility. You know, some of the Republicans who liberals had some respect for who are now so blindly loyal to Trump. It just, I can't believe they don't have the foresight to recognize that nobody is going to look back at the Trump presidency and be like, oh, well, this guy, he was one of our greats. He was one of our greats. I mean, despite all the racism that Obama endured and all of the partisan politics and all the lies about Obama, people will look back at the Obama administration and say, this was one of the great administrations of US history. And, uh, and I'm sorry if you disagree with that, but that's just, that's the tale that history will tell whether or not you like it. The same, I guarantee you, will not be said of 
the Trump administration. And I guarantee you, the moment Trump is out of office, so many people who were such adamant supporters are gonna jump ship and completely remain silent about how much they supported him and what a great leader they thought he was. It's gonna be radio silence from that camp because I saw it happen with the Bush people and it's gonna happen again. Mark my words, mark my words. And the same, and here's the point of comparison. With Obama, that's not true. <laughs> you know, with Obama, I was a huge critic of Obama and a, a, a lot of his policies, and, and I'm still critical of a lot of his policies. But overall, that family was so classy and did so much good for the country. And so even the opposite is true with Obama. You know, some people who were critics of his now look back and go, you know, this guy was pretty fantastic. Um, in other news, oh, what was that story that I wanted to talk about? Oh, come on. It was another politics thing, and now I can't remember what it was. I was just reading about it. See, I don't have the benefit of looking at Yahoo as I'm driving, so I have to make a mental note of things before I leave, and now I can't freaking remember what it is. Oh, what was it? Somebody who's watching in the live chat. I just said, McCain. Thank you, Karina. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, so John McCain might as well be a contestant on RuPaul's Drag Race because his shade, you know, he's about to pass away. I don't like McCain's politics, most of McCain's politics, but I respect him as a human being and I can look and say, okay, we look at the world in totally different ways, but I don't think that you're a bad guy. And in fact, I, like, I don't, I don't look at McCain the same way that I look at somebody like Paul Ryan, let's say. Paul Ryan, who has absolutely no backbone, who's doing everything for profit and power, who is unmoved by the plight of the common everyday person, who who applauds when he rips funding from seniors and the poor. Like, that's not the way that I look at John McCain. Even though McCain may support some of those policies, I don't think he's doing it from the same completely unreflexive position as somebody like Paul Ryan. Okay? There. I said that. There. 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 I have respect for McCain being a war hero. I have, McC I have respect for McCain going up against... Um, the Trump administration and going against people like Bush when he disagreed with Bush's policies. And uh, there's a lot, I think, to be admired by John McCain. And it's, uh, you know, it's tragic that he has a uh, terminal form of cancer. And I feel bad for his family and particularly his daughter because uh, I can empathize with that. My dad had Alzheimer's disease and it's difficult when you have a, an older father as Megan McCain does. My father had me when he was 56 years old and they have some type of illness that you know that they're going to die from. And I guess his death is imminent because he's already talking about his funeral. And every time, uh, he, let me give you another example. Let me give you another example. Fucking McCain and, um, who is the former vice president? Jeez, my brain is... Uh, Biden are, like, nearly best friends. Like, and and uh, Meghan McCain just talks about Joe Biden like she... He's his... He's her uncle, right? Like, 
and so there's, I think, a an earnestness to people like both Biden and McCain, even though they're on different sides of the political spectrum. They're practical. They're okay. Anyway, you get my point. You get my point there. So uh, McCain is doing what my mother loves doing. My mother loves talking about her death, and this is the type of casket, and this is what I where I want to be buried. And I'm always like. Mom, stop it. Come on. You're like perfectly healthy. Can we not talk about this? Well, I'm sending you over a copy of my um, will so you can read it. You know, just a little bit of light bedside reading my mother's will. Like, I don't want to do that. But McCain actually has reason to go down this path, right? Because he could very well die, you know, very, very soon. So the library was open. McCain put on his RuPaul sunglasses and he said, girl, Trump is not welcome at my funeral. The Rot Library is closed. <laughs> and I fucking love the fact that he said that. I love the fact that he said that because so much of political, uh, like the death of politicians, there's all this pomp and circumstance and you have people from both sides of the aisle come, you know, so like when Barbara Bush died, then you had, uh, you, you know, all these past Republican and Democratic presidents and their wives come together. But the difference is I think those people actually genuinely like one another, like the Bushes and the Clintons really get along and, um, and George Bush Sr. considers to be Bill considers Bill Clinton to be like one of his sons, and I mean it's a, it's an interesting relationship, which by the way will not be extended to anybody in the Trump family. I mean this is already crystal clear. Um, one of my favorite lines from Trump's inauguration is George W. Bush going, "What the fuck is happening?" <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's kind of crazy when you have a president that's so awful that he humanizes George W. Bush. One of the dangers of it as well. Uh, so, I, I loved that shade. I, I thought it was extraordinary shade. And the fact of the matter is, is it probably was a huge weight off of Trump's shoulders, because I'm sure he didn't want to show up and have people give him dirty looks and be like, John wouldn't have wanted you here. And then John just let it be known. And that's something that you got to do. You got to do, you got to let people know if you're dying, these are my wishes. That way nobody's wondering, nobody's debating about what the right thing to do is. And he probably thought for my family, I don't want the, I, I don't, it's going to turn into the Trump show. That, because that's what Trump does. Anything that Trump goes to, it turns into the Trump show. It could be somebody else's funeral. And Trump is the type of woman who would show up to every one of his friend's weddings, if he were a woman, in a white dress and a veil. Right? Like, he's always going to find a way to make it about himself. And, and uh, McCain's a smart man. It was like, he's not going to fucking steal the thunder at my wedding slash funeral. Absolutely not. Get the fuck out of here. You weirdo. So good for him. Good for him. Other than that, I really don't know what else is in the news. Because I was in Palm Springs living it up, right? In the pool. So I guess it's okay for me to talk about 
uh, teaching, which is what I do in the last third of these car casts. And today in my graduate seminar, this is the last day that we are doing like a regular day of class because I only have this week and then I come up for one day after this week and I'm done and I'm on summer break. Then I'm gonna be swimming in Dick and Bacardi, right? Uh, so we're reading this piece by a guy that I went to ASU with um, named Dusty Goltz and it's a it's a, an essay about the It Gets Better campaign and all the criticisms of It Gets Better because right after that ca campaign came out and it was started by Dan Savage, you know, it's the one where Dan Savage and a few other people did these videos that talked, that, that were responding to the high rates of LGBTQ suicide, youth suicide. You know, so, you know, gay and lesbian kids in school who end their lives because the bullying that they have to deal with, the anti-gay bullying is so intense that it seems like it's never gonna get better. And what's the point in living a life like this? Especially when you can look around and straight kids by comparison, don't have to deal with a fraction of what so many gay kids do. And um, and then when you throw in other aspects, other components like race and class and you know all of that stuff, it, it can seem more and more hopeless. Like imagine if, this is one of the things I love about RuPaul's Drag Race, when um, you have these drag queens, particularly the queens of color who talk about growing up and how awful things were for them and how there was really no space for them to uh, to defend themselves from all of these really hardcore attacks on their humanity. You know, on the, the basic idea that they were human and should be able to walk down a hall without physical and emotional violence. So there was a lot of knee-jerk criticism to It Gets Better, and this became a viral YouTube campaign. So it wasn't just Dan Savage's video. There were thousands of people who would do videos and say, all of this horrible stuff happened to me when I was younger, and then I graduated high school, and life got better for me in the following ways. And so the criticism was that you can't simply suggest that you graduate high school and then all of a sudden things get better because sometimes things get worse. And also there were criticisms of the campaign being very focused on kind of like capitalism success, like, oh, I got a job and now I can go to Paris and adopt a child and I can do all this other stuff. And also the whiteness of the campaign. And um, But what Goltz does to me, what's the most fascinating thing in the essay is he talks about something called critical paralysis. And critical paralysis happens when somebody's trying to do something good or somebody vocalizes some type of criticism. And then another voice comes up and says, yeah, but what you're saying doesn't take into consideration X, Y, and Z. So what happens is there's a type of, a type of like critical paralysis that shuts down the conversation. So even though the conversation initially was on track to be super productive, that vocalizing the criticism of the criticism breaks down the conversation so that it completely stops and is treated as a failure 
or tries to move it in a direction that the original criticism was never even designed to um, look at. And so he compares it to this guy. There's this guy named Kenneth Burke, who's this dead white guy, but only recently dead, uh, who a lot of people in communication criticism flock to. His name is Kenneth Burke. And Kenneth Burke says that there are two types of stories that people tell. One story is, um, is governed by something called the tragic frame. And the tragic frame is when we look at something and we use the metaphor of like, a tragedy, like a dramatic tragedy, some like theater, like it's a tragedy where there are heroes and villains and the world is very black and white. So the villain is just straight up a villain rather than somebody who has a perspective and is misguided in that perspective. No, 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 no. They're just straight up a villain. And the hero is the hero. And um, it, it, it's it doesn't have many flaws and is just through and through a hero. And it's a very black and white way of looking at the world. And the tragic frame doesn't really do anything to, um, to get us to question kind of what's at play on a cultural level. So I'll give you an idea. If you look at a story about racism, let's say the way that Big Brother 15 handled, handled um, stories about racism on that season, so rather than looking at racism as people are products of racist institutions, what, what a lot of like reality shows, not just Big Brother will do, is they'll say, look at this racist yokel from a, uh, uh, from a rural area and they're so bad because they're so racist and here are the good people who aren't racist and it allows us to scapegoat the racist person rather than looking at the racist person as oh wow they're kind of a victim of racism too and a lot of them are racist because you know for a bunch of different cultural reasons and it kind of blinds us to how racism is more systemic and just focusing on racism on the individual level that's the tragic frame right the other frame, which people don't use very often, is the comic frame. And the comic frame is when you look at a situation and you say, okay, nobody is all good or all evil. The life is, life is not black and white, but instead it's more helpful to look at somebody who might be portrayed as a villain in a story as kind of a goofball who's like a clown character who doesn't really understand like why they think the way they think and how society has programmed them to think the, the way they think. So instead of a villain, they're just kind of like a misguided person, right? So if you look at, um, not Amy Schumer, uh, Sarah Silverman. Sarah Silverman's program uses the comedic frame because you never look at Sarah Silverman's character and think, oh, well, she's an evil character, even though she does terrible things on the show. Like, even though she makes all these horrible jokes about AIDS and um, goes in blackface in one episode and has sex with Jesus and, you know, like all these other things, she's just kind of a nincompoop. And, and you don't look at her and think, ah, let's get her. You look at her and you think, oh, she's so misguided. She's just, she's an idiot. 
And so, the, and the same thing with Michael Scott on The Office. Michael Scott is not a villain in The Office, although he does a ton of sexist, racist, homophobic things. You look at him and you think, ah, oh, poor, <laughs> poor guy. Like he's just been failed, and you know all of his well-intended um, lines are actually his undoing as a human being. And but it's. In some ways, it's not his fault. You know, he's a product of his culture and his time and all this other stuff. So what Goltz does in this essay is he argues that whenever you look at a piece of criticism or a piece of art, if your only response is to say, well, here's, here's why that criticism doesn't work, you're engaging in kind of a form of tragic criticism that leads to critical paralysis. Instead, you should adopt a more Burkean comedic frame and say, okay, there are problems with this, but we shouldn't let that derail the conversation. And sometimes the problems are the very things that expose what's so productive about the critique. You know, it, it helps us flesh it out. And, and so that's what he does. And he talks about like one of the great things about it gets better is that better is something that is very ambiguously defined. So it's defined not through Dan Savage, but it's defined through these thousands of videos that have been posted to YouTube, where for some people better has meant that they um, formed friendships later in life. For better, or better for other people means that they develop survival strategies for dealing with um, super intense homophobic situations. Uh, better for other people meant that they got to get away from their families and form their own queer kinship systems. So people really, in essence, are queering what the term better means. So better is normally defined in very capitalist terms, but that's not the point of the campaign. And really, anybody who critiques the campaign for feeding into those things cut themselves off at the legs because make your own video and explain what better means to you. Or, you know, if it hasn't gotten better, then do that video too. But the most important thing is, is that these campaigns give queer kids a sense of futurity, what the future will bring. Because for so long, I mean, I knew, I know when I was growing up, my father used to say, being gay, that's a lonely life. And anytime you turned on the TV or open newspapers, it, you know, if you were a young gay kid, you thought you were going to die from AIDS. You thought you, you would be alone for the rest of your life, that you would commit suicide, that you would be disowned by everybody that you knew, that your family would look at, never want to see you again. And so what these videos do is they combat all of these cultural discourses that have worked to the symbolic annihilation of a sense of queer future. And that in and of itself is important. Whether or not you think that the way that Dan Savage defines better for the future is consistent with how you would, would define better, just the idea that there is a sense of future, uh, of becoming that is out there, that is a reality for gay and lesbian youth. So that is what we're going to cover today, which I think is a fitting way to end the semester in terms of reading. And I'm interested in seeing what my students have to say about it. But that is going to wrap me up. This is the live show for Monday. Um, 
Wednesday is my birthday, so we'll see if I get an episode out. I'll try to get an episode out, uh, the, the regular show, out by Thursday, hopefully. Knock on fake wood in my car. That'll get done. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. If you are so inclined, go to reaganfox.wordpress.com and get me a birthday present on my Amazon wish list. If not, no big deal. I don't mind. Um, if you haven't done so already, come and join the Facebook community for Fox in the City, which is Foxhole on Facebook. I will approve your request if you make it. Start conversations there. Feel free to agree or disagree with anything I've said, especially on these car cast episodes, because I feel like I'm not trying to be funny every five seconds and I can really talk through politics and we can debate about issues and, you know, maybe you have a totally different interpretation of it gets better, or, you know, whatever the case may be. And it's, uh, you know, the, the cool thing about the Facebook community is you are all bonded by uh, kind of a, an appreciation for the issues that we talk about on this podcast. So take advantage of that. And uh, finally, if you want to follow me on Twitter or on Instagram, uh, please do so. I'm at Reagan Fox, R-A-G-A-N, Fox like the animal, all one word, no underscores or anything um, on both of those sites. So have a good rest of the week. The next time you hear from me, I will officially be 42.